the word of the Lord. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim together. We're so grateful, Lord, for the body and the blood. Uh, it's ever new, every day. Help us to please you as we go out and be the light of the world, proclaiming your death until you come. In the name of Jesus, amen. Be seated this morning. You know, we are a church that enjoys various traditions from various sources. Many times we don't know where they're from. Case in point, standing for the scripture and the prayer is a very Hispanic thing. But some, one of our oldest things that we follow is the reading of the scripture. We kept that from the synagogue days. And in that case, it's called an aliyah, which in Hebrew means coming up. And one thing I want to suggest to you men this morning, in the rotation of those of us who have the great privilege of reading the scripture, there's only one man, and that's me, and I'm 87. You guys are going to have to come on board. Now, Grant likes, likes to deal with people who volunteer. So if you would enjoy the reading of the scripture and the great joy it is to be able to proclaim the scripture and the privilege it is to do so, drop your name in there and you may be added to the rotation. By the way, he has not authorized me to say that, <laughs> but I did anyhow. This morning, as an introduction to his sermon, we want to review the text that he'll preach from. Get this story in your mind, and what I want to suggest to you is this, that you concentrate on it as we read it. And if you'd like to read it from the, your pew Bible, it's there, Daniel 4, or you can deal with the screen. But anyhow, in that time, try to collect your questions and then see what he has to say about those as the sermon progressed. Please read with me. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last... Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mastery, mystery rather is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field, you know, found shade under it, and the birds of the trees. Uh, heights lived in the branches, and all flesh was fed from him. And I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him wet with the dew of heavens, be wet with the dew of heavens. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the, the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the Spirit of the Holy Gods is in you. Lord, come now by the Holy Spirit and lead us as we go, look into your word that we may gain all for, from it, not just the details here, but how it might impact our lives. We ask these things in the name of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, my dear friend Fenton. I love a good, weird story. And if you're looking for weird stories, this second dream of Nebuchadnezzar is pretty good. Um, I'm enjoying the time in Daniel. And, you know, we get to this point and, and we're going to like Daniel in the lion's den hasn't happened. The handwriting on the wall hasn't happened. Those are going to be familiar and we just were like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace. And those are like stories that we're just familiar with. And then here, kind of in the middle of the first half of the book of Daniel, comes this very strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And, you know, I frequently like to point out that one of the most important pieces of Bible interpretation is just figuring out the literary context of the passage we're studying. Do you guys remember the three most important things to biblical interpretation? Context, context, and context. And so one of the things you have to kind of ask is like, what am I looking at here? And, and Daniel is like a collection of different things. Not every chapter in Daniel is the same kind of literature. And so you kind of have to get to this part and go, okay, what is it exactly that we're looking at with this wacky dream? And we're actually going to cover about half the chapter. Um, and Fenton read us about a quarter of the chapter. That was about, the, we, we didn't read uh, Daniel's response, but we'll get to that too this morning. But it's going to take us two weeks to get through kind of this discussion about this dream. So far, Daniel's been very much a narrative. It's been historical narrative. It's been things that happen, and we trust that they happen more or less like, like we've read. And, and we, we've talked a lot about, like, there's really only one hero of the Old Testament, and that's God. And so what's happening in this first narrative, it's very much been, like, about how Yahweh is far superior to the Babylonian gods. That's what the, that's what the first chapter is about. That's what the second chapter is about. That's what the third chapter is about. But this... So is this historic narrative, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? And you go, well, I mean, sort of. It is a story of things that happened. But in the same way, if your buddy sat down over coffee and was like, bro, I had the weirdest dream last night, you would not go, I'm going to listen to this dream like it is something that actually happened to him yesterday, right? You just wouldn't do that. It's a different kind of, you have now entered into a different kind of literary conversation with your buddy over a cup of coffee. And so you hear it differently. Um, so what is this? Is this prophecy? You know, well, I mean, it is talking about like things that are going to happen. There's definitely prophetic stuff going on in here. Um, God's revealing the future. A prophet is calling someone to repent. Like those are very prophetic 
ideas, um, but it, it doesn't quite kind of fit all the right pieces of prophecy either. In some ways, it's a memoir or an autobiography, right? It's like a personal recollection. We're getting to hear from Nebuchadnezzar, which is crazy. Nebuchadnezzar wrote part of your Bible. That's crazy. But here we are. Nebuchadnezzar wrote part of your Bible, and we get to, we get to hear from him. Um, but I think there's a better way to understand this. I don't think it's exactly memoir. I don't think it's exactly narrative. I don't think it's exactly prophecy. I think the genre we're dealing with here is a genre that we should be very familiar with. I think we're hearing a testimony. I think what we're hearing is Nebuchadnezzar tell us why he became convinced that the Lord Most High is the maker of heaven and earth. And, you know, it's just my uh, observation, frequently testimonies are kind of strange. You know, humans are weird creatures. We, we love data. We love, we're like equal parts science and art, right? We love data and facts and, and to be able to prove things, especially, you know, this side of the enlightenment. We want to be able to prove everything empirically, and that's true, but we also love anecdotes. We also love a good story that makes a point. In fact, sometimes it's those stories that are more compelling to us than just raw data. We want something that is not only empirically true, we want something that rings true. We want something that feels right. In fact, sometimes the very best way to prove things that are empirically true is to tell a story. And I think that's what we're reading here, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's a story from his life that's intended to demonstrate the greatness of God. And you know, quite frankly, may we all be this good at telling our stories that demonstrate the goodness of God. In fact, I hope one of the takeaways of this morning is that you have permission to tell your weird story. I bet you coming to Christ was not just, and then I went to a seminar and I became convinced of the verifiable facts of our faith and said, well, you got me. Now I'm a Christian. Probably it wasn't like that. It was probably a little bit weirder. There were probably other people involved. It was probably something you felt. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 is uh, where kind of we get the propensity to, to lean into apologetics. It, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and out of respect. So there you go. We're supposed to be able to give a reason. But what are we supposed to give? What did Peter tell us we're supposed to be able to give a reason for? The hope that is within you. And I love apologetics. I'm a Bible nerd. Got some Bible nerds in the room. Love all you Bible nerds. Way to go. Keep nerding it up. But we don't just need, like, let me give you an example. I think that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is one of the more historically easy to prove events that ever happened. I am completely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth really died and three days later really rose from the grave and lived still. I, I'm completely convinced of that empirically. But... I don't know that that's exactly the story that changes. Now, that is the person. Jesus is the person who changes people's lives. But very frequently, it's more like, um, well, I've told you before. God really got a hold of my heart in the middle of a guitar solo. You've heard me play guitar. You know it wasn't my guitar solo. No, my friend Eric is in a band called Sarah Laughing. I've told you this story before. And I had been praying for direction. I was lost. I was like 19. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was sitting there. I think it was at Big Vineyard in Fullerton, I actually think. I think that's the label they were on. And so they were playing at the church there. And we were all there. And I remember just God getting a hold of my heart, like breaking my heart. Now that is a stupid story. Guitar solos don't draw people to God, but God draws people in the middle of guitar solos. I think the story goes, I should have verified this with my mom before I tell the story, but I think the story goes that my uncle was hiking in Flagstaff or some mountains somewhere and saw a fish fossil and went, it's all true. Now look, there are a lot of ways that fish fossil could get there. And we don't, there's a lot, that is a weird story. And really, I'll tell you, that guy gave his life to Christ because my mom was fasting and praying for him for years. That's, 
That's what actually happened. But his testimony is, I was hiking in the woods and saw a weird rock. And all of a sudden, God said, Rod, I'm your savior. And I said, okay. Now, that is a weird story. But in some ways, that story will impact people every bit as much as, let me sit down and tell you the three most verifiable facts of the foundations of our faith. Are you with me? I discipled a guy one time, and I said, how did you come to Christ? And he said, butterflies. And I was like, keep going. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated. And he said, we only need bees to pollinate flowers, but God made butterflies just because they're beautiful. And I went, I mean, that's not how Bible college went, but fine. Now, do I think that God, we're supposed to look at every butterfly and see the empty tomb. No, but God used butterflies to change that guy's life. So one of the things I hope we get from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is the freedom to tell your story, as weird as it might be. We used to, you know, I'm not going to pull anybody out of the audience right now, but for a while we did this awesome thing that I wish we were still doing. It was great. We were doing a little podcast or something where I was just getting your stories. You guys were coming in and I was just recording like, hey, tell me your story. You guys got some weird stories <laughs> that have ended up with, man, I want to tell people how good God is. And so I think we need to approach this and I think, you know, I go nuts with apologetics. Go read it all. Go figure out the arguments for the existence of God and the empty tomb and all that. It's great. Because we don't want something that is not provable either. Like, humans have that side of us too. We need to be able to, to trust what we believe. But as we approach this, maybe not as an academic argument, but as a powerful story, we need academic, uh, academic arguments. I would even say that most of my preaching is kind of data-driven. I kind of go, hey, I just spent 25 or 30 hours like figuring this out. Can I tell you what it means? That's kind of what the preaching's like around here. But people in Seaside don't only need data. They need good stories. And they need your good stories. And they need you to have the freedom, not necessarily to have the ability to argue them out of Gnosticism, but rather for you to give the story of why you have hope. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Let me tell everybody, this passage is like that. And frankly, there's a lot of things about this passage that I don't really know what to do with. There's some disagreement over even whose testimony this is. Some scholars would say this is actually Nebuchadnezzar III, the guy who took over after Nebuchadnezzar, fits more there. I don't know. My favorite scholars uh, think this is still Nebuchadnezzar II, who we've been hearing about, and they're smarter than me, so I'm going with that. But I don't know that that's all that important, is we just hear this story. You know, you hear this and you go, holy smoke, did God just curse Nebuchadnezzar with insanity? Is that how it works? Well, not very often, but this is Nebuchadnezzar's story, and we're going to let him tell it. So here's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, starting in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth. What an audience, first of all. And I'm, you know, you probably don't have an audience like that. Grant Combs, to everyone who lives on earth. Nobody cares. There's like 80 of you. That's about it. Um, uh, but we don't have that audience, but you do have an audience. There's people that want to know your story. And you know them. Then he says, peace be multiplied to you. It's, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to de generation. This is a different guy. This guy has a changed heart. Remember, after, or after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fiery furnace, he said, their God must be the right God, and if anybody says different, I'll kill them. Well, that might not be a demonstration of a changed heart. This is a changed heart. Peace be multiplied to you, he says. Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell his story for the good of others. Nebuchadnezzar no longer just wants to win and be the top dog. 
We do not get good at telling our story so we win. Rather, he just said, I just peace be multiplied to you. Man, I so desperately want for you to receive the same joy that I've received. I want you to know God like I know God. For us, we would say, I want you to know Jesus like I know Jesus. Why? So we have more people on our team? Is this a giant game of Red Rover, Red Rover? Send that guy right? No, rather, I've found peace. I've found joy. And I so desperately want everybody to have that same peace and joy. Peace be multiplied to you. This is so different than last week's passage. His heart is changed. His heart is now for other people. No longer is the Nebuchadnezzar who's just building golden statues to go, see that golden statue? That's me. Bow to it. Rather, he's saying, can I just gush about how good God is? And in the middle of all of these Old Testament stories, when we're trying to figure out every symbol and every bit of detail, sometimes we miss that we need to just gush over how good God is. He says, it seemed good to me to tell the story of what God has done. This is not out of compulsion, but out of love. Guys, we don't learn to tell our story out of guilt. It's not to like win badges or notches in the belt. Rather, we're not trying to win people to our side. Instead, it just seems good to him. Does it seem good to you to tell the story of how great Jesus is? Is it just what you like to do? Reminds me of the, the blind man in John 9. Look how, I mean, look how personal this is. Nebuchadnezzar no longer is saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego goes, God won this war, so everybody worship them. No, rather he is saying, can I tell you how wonderful he has been to me? We spend a lot of time with data in here. That's kind of my preaching style. It's kind of educational. Like I'm, it's, you know, I, I want you guys to learn something, I guess. I don't know. I've learned something during the week, and I, I'm excited to share it. But at the end of the day, what propels us into the world with all our story and what propels us into the world in righteousness and holiness is simply how good God has been to us. Do you remember the blind man in John 9? Jesus has healed him. He's no longer blind. And some of the leaders come up and they're trying to accuse Jesus and they go, hey, the guy that healed you, he's a sinner, right? And the, the blind man goes, I can't speak to that. I don't know if he's a sinner or what, but I can tell you I was blind and now I see. That's a weird story. And I bet you have a weird story too. I was blind and now I see. Things used to mean something to me. They don't mean that anymore. It was in the middle of a guitar solo in the song Mud. God got a hold of my heart. When has God gotten a hold of your heart? Are you excited to tell that story too? So, one other thing that I'm impressed with just in this first section. Um, I'm impressed that Nebuchadnezzar has learned his heir. Isn't it great that his testimony is God's kingdom is eternal and his dominion lasts from generation to generation? That is awesome. That is exactly what God was trying to teach him in the first three chapters. The whole point of the statue with different metals and the whole point of the fiery furnace was, Nebuchadnezzar, you are awesome, but you're temporary. All dominion comes from God. He is the eternal one. You're going to last a little while and then somebody will come after you. And Nebuchadnezzar has learned. He says, I want to tell you, his dominion is forever. And I imagine that our testimonies are something like that too. Like I would encourage you to think through this question. What is it that God has taught you? Nebuchadnezzar went from, I'm the golden head, I'm going to make a golden statue, everybody's going to bow to me, I'm the great eternal king, to God is the only eternal one. He, his pride is gone, and now he understands who God is. How would you articulate what God has changed in your life? It was pride in you and me too. What story can you tell of God changing your life, your heart? your mind. So his story starts with a surprising beginning in verse four and five. 
You see, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, and I saw in a dream, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. You know, so many uh, testimonies start very differently than this. There's almost no, like, inciting incident to this story. You know, it, when, when most people tell their story, and I even feel like some of us are like intimidated by such great inciting incidents in other people's testimonies where somebody's like, there I was, and then this thing happened, and then I saw this amazing thing, and you go, that, that hasn't been my story. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't tell a story of hitting rock bottom. Don't we kind of have that? And it's true. Rock bottom is a really great place to look up. And if you hit rock bottom, that's... God bless you. Like, look up. Now's the time to receive the Lord. But that's not Nebuchadnezzar's story. Nebuchadnezzar says, I was in my palace. I was at ease. Everything was going just fine. I was comfortable. I was at ease. I was prospering. It doesn't always take hitting rock bottom. God is able to reach us in our comfort too. Hallelujah. He said, I had a dream that made me afraid. Fancies of the visions of my head alarmed me. You know what I love about this is that God speaks um, Babylonian. Dreams were important. There are lots of ways. It wasn't a burning bush for Nebuchadnezzar. It was a dream. And if there are things in your life where you say, oh man, this is alarming me. Something's happening that makes me fearful. Something's happening that makes me think I'm on the wrong track. And don't ignore that. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's a very Babylonian thing. If you are troubled, if something is alarming you, turn your ear to God. God can use fish fossils in the mountains or guitar solos and conversations with friends and, I don't know, memes and whatever streaming, I guess. So then Nebuchadnezzar tells the details of this dream. And it's a weird dream. And the details are only so important for us. I mean, these symbols mean important things, but God could use any symbols. But this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He said, there was a tree in the middle of the earth. Okay, you with me? That's a big tree. A tree growing up from the middle of the earth. It's visible from the whole earth. And its top goes to heaven. Oh, are you Bible scholars going, this is like temple imagery. This is like garden, mountain, heaven, and earth connecting. Like this is kind of that temple imagery that's been working its way through the whole Old Testament. He said it was beautiful and abundant. Probably this corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar's living at ease in his palace. This tree, like Nebuchadnezzar, is abundant, beautiful. By almost every metric, life is working out for this tree. By almost any metric, life is working out for Nebuchadnezzar. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air are fed and they find shelter. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he goes, look, my life wasn't just working for me. It was working for everybody. The economy was booming. Jobs were up. Like I looked out and I said, hey, I am the best in this tree that is me. Everybody is fed. Everybody has comfort. It's not just working out for me. It's working out for everyone. But then there was this divine being there, something that, that he calls a watcher above the tree, and that's a big deal. He says there was something beyond. There was somebody not just looking at the human metrics of things, but there was rather somebody who could see from above, who could see maybe even his heart, who could see what was actually happening beyond that tree, beyond the earth. And from above the tree, it was a different perspective. In fact, this watcher said the branches need to be lopped off, the tree needs to be cut down, let the birds and the beasts flee. So while life was working for the tree, it wasn't working for this divine being above the tree. And when we're talking about who is this divine being, this is Nebuchadnezzar telling his story. Daniel's going to fix this in a minute. Daniel's going to say, this is the Lord Most High talking to you. From God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar's life wasn't working. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, life is great. Nobody complains to him. And I'll tell you what, if you complain to him and you get thrown in a fiery furnace, I know why nobody was complaining to him. 
But if that isn't a human experience, if we are judging only by earthly things, it is possible to think that we are killing it in life. We're doing great. Only to recognize that pride comes before a fall. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he was doing everything great and everybody's being taken care of and he's the protector and provider. He's the God of the world. But from God's perspective, Nebuchadnezzar's heart is full of pride. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he tells this story, says, there came a time when even though there was no army coming to get me, there was no illness, there was nothing that shook me like that. Rather, I came to understand through this dream that my life was not pleasing God. And that from God's perspective, it had to be chopped down. And then it really gets weird. This watcher decrees that the tree should be cut down, but that a stump should be left. And the stump is going to have metal bounds around it. So there is some hope. The stump is not going to be, we're not going to like back up the tractor and like get it out by the roots. Rather, it's going to be there. But all of that bounty, all of the goodness is going to be gone. Then the watcher says that the tree is going to hang out in the field with the grass with dew on it in the morning. Isn't that what trees do? The metaphor is shifting here. And this tree is going to have to be in the grass of the fields. Where else do you put a tree? But rather, there's also something happens with the pronouns in the middle of this. That the tree goes from it to him. And Nebuchadnezzar tells the story that as this dream keeps going, he starts to realize, I know this is about me. The tree is referred to as he and the tree is going to go from having the mind of a man to the mind of a beast, which all, I don't know about you, but seems very unusual for a tree. But Nebuchadnezzar is learning something that at this point he doesn't fully understand, so he goes to Daniel. But you see why Nebuchadnezzar got freaked out. This is his testimony. Let it be Nebuchadnezzar talking to you, going, look, I had it all. I, from my perspective, I was the most successful king in the world. I had anything I wanted. In fact, from my perspective, I thought things were going great for everybody else too. I didn't think I was selfish. I thought that I was providing for people. I thought everybody was comfortable. I thought there was room for everyone under the tree and in the tree. And I thought everybody was resting fine. And I was just sitting around strutting on palace roofs thinking about how great I was. But then God broke my heart and I realized that I was selfish. I realized that I was full of pride. And this is the story. And man, I wonder if we could let Nebuchadnezzar's testimony cut us too. Where we would stop looking at our lives just based on exterior metrics. That we might decide how life is going for us, not just on what we drive and, and the, you know, the finery of our clothes, um, but rather that we would say, Man, what's this look like to God? What does my life look like from God's perspective? I'm not just concerned about how much money's in the bank. I'm not just concerned about I got a raise and compliments and, and people like me and, and check out my new shirt. Rather, I'm going to constantly have this perspective that Nebuchadnezzar had to grow. What's my life look like from God's perspective? Am I full of pride or is there humility? I think it might do us some good to look at Daniel's role in all of this, and, and we'll have to skip around just a little bit, but, um, but there's a few things that strike me about Daniel. First of all, Daniel has been faithful before. Nebuchadnezzar knows he can go to Daniel because Daniel has functioned like this in Nebuchadnezzar's life before. This is his kind of his post in the kingdom is exactly this. Daniel, I know that you are connected to the holy ones, he says. And then again, he doesn't have it right. Who Daniel's connected to is Yahweh. He doesn't see clearly. But, but even though he's just almost right, Daniel will correct him in a minute. But we'll never know what our faithfulness today will mean to people tomorrow. Daniel, I wonder if even he's kind of frustrated 
as Nebuchadnezzar goes, I had a dream that freaked me out. Can you tell me what it means? And Daniel's like, bro, we did this before. You had a dream, golden head, feet of clay, the whole thing. And instead of humbling yourself, you built a full golden statue and told us all to bow to it. But he doesn't. Rather, Daniel, not only has he been faithful before, he has, we might say he has earned trust in Nebuchadnezzar. And he's patient with Nebuchadnezzar. And it is that faithfulness and truth-telling and patience that allows him to minister to Nebuchadnezzar here again. Not only has he been faithful before, but he cares. And I wonder, just as we would model ourselves, this, we'll still, we're still thinking about our testimony, but let's think about this, what place we might have in the testimony of other people. Daniel has an important place in the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar because he genuinely cares. He doesn't revel in the coming trouble for Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, in verses 18 and 19, he's going to say, look, this dream I had, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and, um, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for you are, uh, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel says, uh, Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But Belshazzar answered him and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Like, I just wonder if we have that attitude with people in our lives or just the culture in general. Like, do we revel when people get their comeuppance? Or do we love people so much that we would go, man, I'm sorry, but this might hurt. Like, what God's telling you right now is not something that you're going to enjoy. In fact, your enemies would revel in this, but Daniel's not his enemy. Daniel is grieving with the king. And I just wonder if we love people like that. Nebuchadnezzar is easy to not like. Nebuchadnezzar is the biggest, the baddest, the evilest. And Daniel still is a faithful, kind ear and somebody willing to tell the truth. So not only... Has he been faithful before? Not only does he care, but he's willing to tell the truth. The rest of, you know, the, the section between verses like 20 to 24-ish, 25-ish, um, is Daniel retelling Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and he goes, man, that tree, that's you, man. And look how great things are, but a fall is coming. Verse 24, he said, this isn't just a watcher, Nebuchadnezzar. This is coming from God Most High. And there is a fall coming. And the breakdown will continue for a while. Jump down to verse 25. That you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Some of your translations will say seven years. And we'll talk about this more as we go. But my, my uh, take on this is that seven is mostly... Uh, the symbolic number like it was with the, uh, the fire. Do you remember that the fire was seven times hotter? And we talked about they didn't measure it. It's not se it was just like wicked hot, baby. And in the same time, in the same way, Nebuchadnezzar is told, look, this is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your very mind, your, your, your ability to think. And there's going to be like a period of seven times. It's like going to take a while. It's a fullness of time. And I think what's going on is Daniel saying, look, you are going to suffer until you figure out what you need to figure out. Keep reading from verse 25. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives, and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the lesson you have to learn, that you're not the top of the food chain. And God is going to cause a fall in your life. And it's going to last as long as it needs to last until you figure out who really is God. God wasn't joking with that statue thing, Nebuchadnezzar. Your reign is great, but it's temporary. Only God is eternal. So Daniel makes the point of the dream pretty clear. You know, I think 
we fall off the, the rails on one side of that or another. Daniel is absolutely loving and cares for Nebuchadnezzar, even though I'm not sure there's a lot of good reason to, but he loves him and he cares for him and he grieves when he's hurting and he's this wonderful, empathetic, compassionate guy who is absolutely willing to look at him and go, your life is going to be bad until you honor God. And I wonder if we like fall off of one of those rails or another where on one hand, some of us are super loving and just willing to cry with anybody and that's great. But then when it comes time to tell people the truth about, no, the tomb is empty, honor Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. That is it. We struggle. There's other people that go, I'll tell them. I'll tell them right now. In fact, sit them down. I'll make them feel terrible at the end of this testimony. Because you have the words, you've got the like, Jesus, the only way, turn or burn, baby. But you forgot to love people. And a big part of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is that God had put Daniel in his life, who both loved him, cared about him, and would tell him the truth. And we could model ourselves after that. And in your testimony, tell me there weren't people like that in your testimony too. People who are willing to look at you and go, dude, you're off the rails, man. This isn't right. But you knew they loved you. So we get to the point of the dream in verses 26 and 27, and we'll wrap up here in a second. Verses 26 and 27 say this, and it was, sec, I have a slide. Um, and it was, uh, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. There's hope here. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of prosperity. Can you, can you remember back to the intro about literature and go, okay, what are we hearing here? We're hearing Daniel talk, but we're hearing Nebuchadnezzar's recollection of Daniel talking. So as Nebuchadnezzar is saying, how I went from comfortable, selfish, and terrible to knowing that God is the living God and that I'm temporary and that his dominion is forever, how I got there was this conversation with Daniel. And here's what Daniel told me. Verse 26, Daniel told him about hope. Like, hey, it's going to hurt. The tree's getting cut down. The branches are lopped off. But God's going to preserve the stump. It's not gone forever. And in fact, if you will just turn, your kingdom will be confirmed as soon as you know that heaven rules. It's not you, man. It's God. This is, I think, important for us. You know, especially we're a wealthy nation on the world scale. A lot of us have a lot of wealth, and we kind of go, well, is God anti-wealth? Is God, like, does God want all of us? Like, is God just like, chop down another tree, and he's out there in the dew of the morning? <laughs> no, that's not the testimony of Scripture at all. God is not anti-prosperity. God is not even anti-Nebuchadnezzar, but he is against idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to be a poor guy to walk with God but he can't be an idolater. That's probably a pretty good perspective on stuff and material things and wealth in general. It's wonderful, unless you worship it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need to lose everything, but he does need to learn to give God glory. The testimony of Nebuchadnezzar is not that out of nowhere God unfairly punished me. Rather, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is that God did all he could to draw Nebuchadnezzar out of selfishness, out of sin, and into a proper relationship with him. Look how clear Daniel's words are to him in verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Do you know what we call that? The New Testament has a word that is repentance. Stop sinning and start doing good things. That sounds like worse base, base salvation. No, not at all. It's just if you love something, you act different. So Daniel says, and maybe 
I don't know who you are in this story. I don't know if you're Daniel and there's somebody in your life you need to speak truth to, or if you're Nebuchadnezzar and somebody needs to tell you, man, you got to turn. God loves you, but your pride and idolatry is not welcome. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness. Repent. Don't overthink it. In fact, my advice to you, my advice for all of us, me included, is that when it comes to taking this advice, to changing, to stop sin and and practice righteousness, would be don't think too hard about it. We can sit and make a list. Is this a sin? Is that a sin? Is this a sin? Is that a sin? But if you are following Jesus, if you're in prayer, He'll put in your heart where you need to change. Rather, when you feel a twinge, don't do that. Turn and go the other way. It's going to be a process. But Nebuchadnezzar needs to be told, just stop sinning and instead pursue righteousness. Some of the best advice people have ever given me have not been filled with lofty words, but have been that simple. You just need to knock it off and turn and go the other way. And then it can't be any clearer. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Well, there's a path. You know, as Nebuchadnezzar is on his palace in his comfort and ease, I don't know that the plot of the oppressed is very important to him. He's thinking about big picture economic factors. He's thinking about all his, you know, all the nobles are at peace. He's thinking about military, you know, conquering and and peace in the land. But I don't know if he's thinking about are there people suffering under my leadership. But I think what was true for Nebuchadnezzar is true for us. The most important way we can get right with God is to treat people better. The most important way we can be right with God is to think about how we can be uplifting the people who are downtrodden, how we could make a difference in the world with people who are oppressed, oppressed by their own sin, oppressed by society, I don't know, people who are suffering. Do you remember the sheep and the goats? Do you remember Jesus saying this is what's going to be on the last day? That we'll divide people, sheep on the right and goats on the left. And, and the measuring stick will be how they treated the least of these. How you did to the least of these. This will be, what if that's our tree dream? What if that's our wake-up call? Like, what if Jesus was serious about that? What if that's not just metaphor, but what if it is, hey, guys? Stop sinning and instead take care of the poor. Hey guys, stop thinking about yourself and instead find the oppressed and help. What if he meant that? Nebuchadnezzar, the way you're treating people has got to stop. You might be at ease in your palace, but people are hurting and you're not doing anything. So remember, this is a testimony. These words are uh, the, 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 you know, the wounds of a friend. Daniel is telling him this, and it's going to eventually cut him. But, you know, let me dip into next week's sermon for just one line, uh, or two lines, actually. Verse 28 and 29 says, And all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. God didn't do anything for a year. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar had this talk. You know what it's like when there's some really convicting thing or something happens and you're like, oh my gosh, I just saw this news article. Can you believe this stuff is happening? Or you, you went and, you know, I don't know what you did. You heard, some, you heard a speaker and you're like, oh my gosh, we should do something. I should change. I've been wrong. I should Learn to, you know, I don't know, participate in spiritual disciplines, whatever it might be. You go, oh, yes, I need to be different. But then a little time goes by, 
and you're ruminating on it, and life gets busy, and you have a good meal, and you talk with people, and all of a sudden that initial sting isn't there anymore. Nebuchadnezzar could have avoided next week's sermon. This chapter could end right now. This chapter could end with Nebuchadnezzar going, so I repented, and we started social programs that took care of all the poor people, and everything was good, and there was no more hurting in Babylon. But it doesn't. Actually, it goes, and God gave him a full year. The patience of God is incredible with us. There'd be more smiting if me or you were God. So don't take the patience of God in your life as apathy of God. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go back and he's going to think about it. And he's not going to do anything for a year. And he's going to pay for it. And I wonder if your testimony doesn't include some of that too. I knew better, I knew better, I knew better. But it wasn't until I hit rock bottom that God really got my attention. I hope you're filled by the story of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And I hope that we see ourselves. You know, my tree is not planted in the middle of the earth and growing to where everybody on earth can see it. I have a very small tree, and maybe you do too, but, but it's mine. And my pride can be every bit as much a problem for me as Nebuchadnezzar's was for him. And I wonder if you and I might grow in the constant humility that we wish Nebuchadnezzar would have had. And then we also grow in the ability to tell our story of, I was proud, but God got my attention. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you for the, the story that we are in. Lord, I think many of us in the room could tell stories that are, you know, have some weird parts and some parts that, that are not normative, that are not what everybody could expect all the time, but ways that you got our attention. And God, thank you for getting Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Thank you for the story being preserved. And I pray, Lord, that we would all have a sensitive, tender heart that we might say, Lord, we desire to have this kind of heart that says, I, it just seems good to me that I would declare to people what the, the wonderful things that God has done to me. Lord, I also pray that we would all have some Daniel in us where we would love people and care about them and, and cry with them when they wreck their lives and, and, and be compassionate and empathetic and also be able to tell them the truth, that you are the way, the truth, the life, and there's no place, there, there's no other way to the good life except through you. God, as, as we read these Old Testament stories, would you strengthen us? Would you draw us to you? I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, why don't you stand and we'll sing the doxology together. But I'll tell you, if God is, if God is doing something in your heart, if there's a place where you go, if I'm honest, there's places where I need to repent. I need to turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. This song is only four lines long. That's all the time you have before it's all conversations and, you know, restaurants. So right now, if, if God is tugging on you, now's the time to commit to Him. Now's the time to turn. Now's the time to say yes to Jesus. All right.